Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. There's been a lot of bizarre stuff that's happened um, recently, and I thought I would go into some of that to open the show, um, because as you know, I am, uh, I am a follower of conspiracy theories, and not all conspiracy theories are created equal. Um, I still believe there are conspiracies in, uh, surrounding events like 9-11 and the 2001 anthrax attacks and covering up the deaths of American journalists um, that were killed by U.S. military and others. Um, you know, Wormwood, the Earl Morris miniseries about Frank Olson being allegedly murdered by the CIA. Um, that's becoming less of a conspiracy theory over time and more of just conspiracy fact. Um, so that's what I mean by conspiracy theories are not created equal. And one of the best examples of that, in my opinion, is the sort of what I would describe as the Pizzagate Team Trump PSYOP. Um, and Pizzagate eventually evolved into something called QAnon, which is so bizarre and convoluted and confusing that um, I thought I would actually start by reading what I would describe as probably the most concise explanation of what QAnon is supposed to be from a person who believes in QAnon. So just up front, I will um, start by saying this is written by a guy named Dr. Michael Sala, who has completely bought into this idea of QAnon hook, line, and sinker. Um, and basically, I will just start by reading his piece. The headline of his piece is, QAnon is U.S. military intelligence that recruited Trump for president to prevent coup d'etat. Um, let me read that again, if that title seemed really bizarre to you, because it fucking is. QAnon is U.S. military intelligence that recruited Trump for president to prevent coup d'etat. Now, when people traditionally think of a coup d'etat, they think of actually like a military coup d'etat. So that's a very fascinating sort of inverse flipping upside down the paradigm that, that QAnon is actually a, a cabal of U.S. military intelligence people who are apparently extremely pro-Donald Trump who are trying to defeat the deep state, I guess. Um, but of course, if you've been listening to the show, what's bizarre is that Trump continually surrounds himself with players that were, I, I would describe as deep state players and actors who were part of the Bush administration, um, the Iraq war, various other horrible things the U.S. empire has done over the last several decades. So it's very strange um, that this is the framing in which QAnon is supposed to be. Now, I'll just read a little bit, because this is what it involves Dr. Jerome Corsi. If you listen to any AM right-wing talk radio, Jerome Corsi is not a fringe figure. His books and his stuff about Obama's birth certificate being fake and all that shit is constantly advertised on right-wing talk radio. This guy has hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars in advertising budget to push his bullshit on right-wing talk radio. And he was actually the reporter that InfoWars was going to send to the White House as their White House press corps reporter. Um, and I don't know whatever happened with that, but... Um, so this article starts by saying, according to veteran investigative reporter, Dr. Jerome Corsi, who was approached three years ago by a group of generals and told that Donald Trump had been recruited by U.S. military intelligence to run in the 2016 presidential elections and subsequently help remove corrupt deep state officials from power. 
Corsi claims that QAnon represents the same group of senior military intelligence officials who are exposing the deep state corruption and officials in a history of treasonous actions against the U.S. Republic. Well, Corsi didn't name the generals. Of, of course he didn't, because the guy's a fucking liar. <laughs> or these generals were able to pull the wool over his eyes and convince him that they're part of some cabal of a uh, of hero good guy military intelligence insiders I, I honestly don't know it's very bizarre an examination of public comments by mr trump q and and related political events do make corsi's extraordinary claims very plausible it's important to note that corsi's speech happened only a day after a tweet by president trump featuring him with 20 senior u.s military officials who dined with him the previous previous night and this, this is very interesting because if you believe in this idea that there's some sort of cabal of military intelligence insiders who want to stop corruption in the deep state, this is just how fucking stupid these people are who are believing this. Because this is the, – the article actually posts a QAnon tweet – or sorry, 4chan post that, that posts a picture of Trump dining with those military officials and says, who is standing next to Pence and POTUS? Message? Question mark. Bolton cleaning house. Out they go! Exclamation mark. A clean house is very important. Period. Q. Um, if, I mean, if anybody listening, you know, thinks that this sounds like a freaking child posting this you're not wrong it does sound like that to me very very funny that they would say bolton is cleaning house i mean anyone who's been following anything knows that bolton is one of the most evil mother deep state motherfuckers you've ever seen so i just find that alarming and very funny but i'd say a little bit more alarming that this many people are still following this bizarre um conspiracy about that a deep state insider is constantly posting on 4chan, leaving breadcrumbs on what Trump's about to do. And about six months ago now, they said that Trump was about to unleash a elite pedo roundup of some kind, and that the State of the Union was going to announce that Hillary, John Podesta, and all these other people had already been arrested and they were about to be sent to Gitmo. The article continues to say, The level of information on deep state control and corruption released by QAnon in over 1,100 posts to date is astounding in its scope and impact. A number of false flag events have been revealed. And then it goes on to just, you know, hail General Flynn as a hero because he said lock her up at the Republican convention and he was dropping breadcrumbs that this was happening. Um, Which is just absurd because anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows that Michael Flynn co-wrote a book about how to defeat Islam, describing all you know the billions of Muslims in the world as one giant sleeper cell. He co-wrote a book with Michael Ledeen, one of the craziest PNAC members ever, next to maybe John Bolton. So I don't understand how these people can get away with pushing such a blatantly false narrative. It's very, um, very interesting. And let's just for a second, entertain this idea that this is some kind of group of elite military intelligence insiders who are sort of in the vein of Michael Flynn, or I've even heard that Colonel Anthony Schaefer is part of this group of military intelligence insiders. Well, I'm sorry to say that these military intelligence insiders are really fucking dumb, if, if this is what they are. I mean, you just have to read the QAnon post to just see how childlike and strange it is. It says things like, God bless America. Um, It talks about the deep state in the same way Sean Hannity talks about it. I mean, it's the most watered-down crap you've ever seen. So if that is the case, if it is really an op being run out of the Trump administration by some military intelligence person, it actually makes it even more bizarre. Because the things that they're saying are, 
not only sort of civil war generating, but some of the most fantastical sort of Christian sexually repressed conspiracy theory shit you'll ever see next to Pizzagate about Hillary going, you know, being rounded up and sent to Gitmo for being a pedophile. Um, so the reason why Jerome Corsi plays such an interesting role in this, though, is not just because he was the one who sort of solidified what this idea of QAnon was in the public mind, but because Jerome Corsi in the last month um, now says all of QAnon is fake. And uh, it's it's one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen. He's, this is from rightwingwatch.org. Jerome Corsi reverses on image he once said authenticates QAnon conspiracy theory. This is by author Jared Holt from May 11th. It says, Jerome Corsi, the Washington bureau chief for Alex Jones Infowars, has been growing increasingly frustrated with the anonymous source at the center of the QAnon conspiracy theory and is now publicly doubting a piece of evidence that he once touted as irrefutable proof that the theory was real. Earlier this year, Corsi emerged as one of the leading figures promoting a conspiracy theory known as the Storm. Adherents to the Storm believe that a high-level Trump administration official has been leaking secret intelligence administration, blah, 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 blah. Corsi has begun to sour on Q, as the anonymous poster is known, after Q alleged that people like Corsi, who are using the laughably fake conspiracy theory to enrich themselves. As a result... Corsi has publicly has started to publicly doubt the authenticity of a very grainy photo of an ink pen he claimed once pretty much authenticates that QAnon is very close to Donald Trump. Now we're dealing with several. So this is just my commentary. Now we're dealing with several different layers of bizarreness here. So first of all, Corsi said that he had irrefutable proof that QAnon was very close to Donald Trump, and now he's saying that QAnon is fake and that it's not a Trump insider. Um. But what's fascinating is, wouldn't you be concerned if you're someone like Corsi, who's been part of like the conspiracy industry racket for so long, that someone from the White House would be trying to le- like run a psyop to dog whistle conspiracy theorists? Like, let's just say, I mean, the fact that Corsi believed at one time that this was something very close to Donald Trump, it seems very odd that you would trust, even if you liked Trump, that you would trust that he would be running like a do- conspiracy dog whistling psyop out of the White House to just like fuck with people. Like that's, that should bother you. Um, it's just strange that no matter which way you slice this, it's bothersome. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's what's so bizarre about it. Corsi has also claimed that posts allegedly authored by Q are actually part of a deep state psyop and has called the poster a Marxist. These are the two tweets, actually, that tipped me off that Jerome Corsi was just going off the rails. And what's interesting is, I've, I mean, I don't know who, who's behind QAnon. I mean, it might even be different people, but I've long suspected that it was somebody with familiarity with the conspiracy world who was connected to Trump who was running this operation as, as a PSYOP. And, you know, one of the suspects that comes to mind is someone like Roger Stone, Alex Jones himself, um, and Jerome Corsi. So it's interesting that as soon as Q started talking shit about Jerome Corsi, he says it's all fake now. Um, even though it was like perfectly wish fulfillment, exactly what these assholes, like leading them down, like leading them by the nose about pedophilia and, you know, the deep state. I mean, so it's fascinating that th- this is what Q, uh, Jerome Corsi is saying now. 
He says, abusive anti-Semitic strain growing daily among the new Q followers is a clear flashing red sign for concern. PSYOP DS, deep state, wants to turn Q movement against Israel. The Marxist anti-capitalist theme is also inconsistent with America first make a USA wealthy again. Of course, he also says, new Q, deep state PSYOP with NASA backing. Q posts after 428 are formulaic, written by advanced AI program, formula dash XYZ from open source, followed by a string of cryptic questions, promised booms, not delivered, leftist, parentheses, Marxist, subtle indoctrination, money equals profiteering. <laughs> so, I mean, it would be really funny if this was something that Jerome Corsi, Alex Jones, and Roger Stone were all sort of trading off on, or maybe just one of them was managing, and then all of a sudden they lost control of it because someone else started posting his QAnon and started getting people to believe it. I mean, that's possible too. I have no idea who's doing this. Um, but apparently, according to someone that I've spoken to, Alex Jones and Jerome Corsi have now been pushing another anonymous deep state insider deep state insider source they claim named zach who calls into the alex jones show now <laughs> he calls in um so that's the new cue for them apparently you know they've lost control of this narrative so they're anti-q and non now so i'm not exactly sure where it's going now um and it's a little bit you know it, over a thousand posts this q person has made so i personally don't have the time to really follow it and look at them all i mean i don't I frankly don't care. I've seen enough of them where I just know immediately on their face that they're complete fucking bullshit or they're written by someone who's a total moron. Um, and that's what's so strange about why so many people are following it. Um, in fact, one of the QAnon posts months ago said that because Trump was about to round up all these elite pedophiles, that the deep state was going to try to kill him, which meant that we that Trump needed to put in good martial law, milit temporary military control to keep the country safe. Now, that, I mean, to me, that just seems like a straight Alex Jones parody. Like, let's see if we can get Alex Jones followers to believe in martial law. Like, wouldn't that be hilarious if we trolled 4chan into getting people to believe that? And they fucking did. I mean, so I, I've gone back and forth thinking this is just some kind of elaborate troll. Um, it's a very clever troll, though, because it's basically just like leading these people down the exact path they want to go down. You know, this phony idea of the deep state being only Obama and Hillary and John Kerry. I mean, it's sad shit. But, I mean, Abby and I have talked about this. You can talk to random people now on the street. Um, Abby got into a cab where the guy started talking about QAnon and Pedogate. It's a seriously widespread belief that this is actually happening. So enough about <clears throat> QAnon and Pizzagate. I mean, Pizzagate's kind of old news. I don't, you know, I don't even think that's really still going anymore. And then the, I mean, the, I guess the in final, I'll just say that the QAnon narrative just keeps morphing to whatever ends that you know people want it to be. I mean, that's why I keep saying wish fulfillment. It just keeps morphing to whatever people want. Um, so I, I I don't have enough time to follow it. Um, what I do have time to do is just to examine figures who push it, um, sort of like Lionel of Lionel Media, Jerome Corsi, um, and others 
There's someone named Tina Beans on YouTube who basically became viral and has like hundreds of thousands of views on her videos because all she talks about is QAnon. So it's basically a way to generate enormous traffic to your stuff and clickbait because there's all these people still hungry for this bullshit online. You know, people have complained um, that I talk about Alex Jones so much and, you know, I, I frankly don't care. I think that he's a dangerous figure um, that needs to be called out. And I believe that he needs to be called out from a perspective of uh, not just mockery and marginalization. I believe that he needs to be shown for the hypocrite that he is as well. And um, as someone who used to listen to Infowars during the Bush administration, it's uh, very, very frightening to see what's happened to him um, over time and how he basically has just become an arm of the Trump administration and an apologist or organization for neocons that are pushing Trump's foreign policy. And that's very, very interesting. And, and of course, having John, you know, Roger Stone on there all the time and now apologizing for John Bolton and Rudy Giuliani takes it to a whole new level because this is an organization that used to basically um, ru- like r- gravitate or revolve completely around 9-11 conspiracy stuff. And for anyone who's paid attention to 9-11 conspiracy stuff, um, Rudy Giuliani is a very curious figure in that. Um, so it's really telling that this is how much Alex Jones has sort of abandoned his principles for his organization, that now he's just basically defending and promoting anything Trump does, including the, the moving the uh, U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, if you look up on YouTube right now, there's a video where Alex Jones explains why he supports Israel. He posted a video just to you know make sure that his listeners knew, but yet he'll still try to pepper in things sometimes. Like he made a video saying this is why neocons are bad, and this is who the neocons are. He had some guy named um, some like little shit Infowars, um, you know, baby faced guy recruit called Very Jake News reading a uh, monologue about what what neocons are. Of course, John Bolton is not mentioned in there. Of course, Frank Gaffney is not mentioned in there. Um, you know, it's just it's just basically people who are like more you know who are anti-Trump that this guy is talking about. Um, and that's an issue that I think really needs to be debunked constantly. This idea that all the neocons are against Trump and that Trump is against the neocons—that is simply not the case. Um, there was a split in the neocons, and. That split revolves mostly around um, Iran, I believe. Not just Iran, but the desire to be more outspoken about Islam and also more unfiltered about their desire to murder Arabs and Muslims. There was, an, there was a split in the neoconservative movement in D.C. where certain of those people gravitated more towards the right-wing media circuit Islamophobia circuit, and other ones gravitated more towards sort of the neoliberal think tank circuit. Um, and some of those people were people like Frum, Bill Crystal, Max Boot, Robert Kagan. Um, and then on the other side, we have people like John Bolton, um, Frank Gaffney, Bill Bennett, James Woolsey, Newt Gingrich. These are all people who went to Trump. You know, and you might you might say Newt Gingrich is not a neocon or whatever. I mean, yeah, he doesn't fit the exact mold as a neocon, but when it comes to Iran, Muslims, and foreign policy in terms of neocon foreign policy, he very much is in line with that. So I'm sick of people saying that, oh, John Bolton is not a neocon, he's just a nationalist. It's like, he was, first of all, he's a PNAC signatory. And, and, and maybe what you're trying to say is that he's gone above and beyond a normal neocon, and he's even more, he's even worse. Okay, you can say that. 
look at the PNAC document. Every fucking name on that, everybody on that is a neocon. And I don't care what they say. I don't care what they evolved into or how they tried to rebrand themselves later. They're all neocons to me. Now you have Rudy Giuliani on TV constantly talking about the deep state. And here, and Rudy Giuliani is uh, one of the creepiest deep state actors that I personally know about. So while you have all these neocons, like the pro-Hillary neocons trying to rebrand themselves to be civilized humanitarians who, who care for human rights, you have all these other weird neocons like John Bolton, Rudy Giuliani and stuff. They're trying to rebrand themselves as being like anti-establishment sort of heroes. So just like Trump promised, um, he pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal right before the time was about to expire on like when he would, you know, if he could decide if he was going to pull out or not. So he did pull out. Um, and basically what that means is we're just reversing it back to the era of the Bush administration. A hostile footing towards Iran. Um, the rhetoric is getting out of control towards Iran. Israel is regularly attacking Iranian um you know, troops and, and people in Syria, um, Israel's regular attacking just Syrian forces now, and then blaming Iran for like getting, you know, if, if, if for everything basically. Um, and it's, uh, it's fascinating because there's a lot of forces in DC that have wanted this to happen for a long time. They just don't want Trump to be behind it. So like when Bill Crystal, the day that Trump put out the Iran deal, Bill Crystal was just kind of casually tweeting about eating at a restaurant and flying on a plane. He didn't even act like he was happy about it. Now, the reason for that is not because he's not thrilled about it, not because he's not orgasmic about it. All the neocons, keep in mind, all the neocons wanted this. None of them wanted us to stay in this deal. None of them. The only reason they're not celebrating it is because it's more important for them to look morally superior to Trump. They do not like it that Trump has his face behind this. They don't want Trump to be the one to, you know, turn the heat up on Iran. They want someone to turn the heat up on Iran who sort of follows a very specific script and acts a very specific way. And Trump is not that person. So they're just going to hide their excitement for this right now, I think. But I already did a a webcast or it's like a really old sounding word now webcast i did a, a live stream i guess is the new way you describe that on youtube about rudy giuliani and trump appointing him to be his lawyer um and i find that very fascinating because as you already know um anybody listening to this podcast knows that i wrote an article in 2016 on November 23rd, after the election, called Trump promised to drain the swamp, but he's filling it with Bush-era crazies instead. Um, and what I meant was, you know, some of the Bush-era crazies hate Trump. That's true. And I described that in my article, which ones do. But a, a handful of very, very crazy crazies, uh, craziers, actually went towards Trump. And one of them originally was Rudy Giuliani, and there was talk even that Rudy Giuliani was going to be appointed as attorney general under Trump before Jeff Sessions got the job. Other ones included John Bolton, James Woolsey, Frank Gaffney, um, Michael Flynn, uh, Newt Gingrich. And one of the things that I found, and then Mike Pence also, but one of the interesting 
patterns that I found in this group of people. Oh, and also also mentioned Pompeo and Sebastian Gorka are definitely neocons as well. Um, and I'll go into that in a little bit. But one of the things that ties all these other people together, Pence, Rudy Giuliani, James Woolsey, Newt Gingrich even, is they, have, they all have an odd relationship to the 2001 anthrax attacks. And by that I mean most of them um, were very much trying to ride on that propaganda wave, pushing the idea that Saddam Hussein had done the anthrax attacks, even though he didn't. It came from the U.S. government. Rudy Giuliani specifically actually had a company ready to go right after the 2001 anthrax attacks called Bio One um, that was set up to clean buildings that were contaminated with anthrax. In 2004, Rudy Giuliani's company, BioOne, tried to purchase the Florida Sun building where Robert Stevens, the first person murdered with anthrax, was killed. Now, there was a dispute in the middle of this process where Rudy Giuliani's company wanted to buy the building, um, not just clean it out. And what happened was uh, a bunch of employees were like, well, you can't buy the building and buy all our stuff in it too. Like we need our stuff. And Rudy Giuliani was like, Oh, and his company was like, Oh no, but we need to like to decontaminate everything. We actually need all the anthrax. Like meaning that they, I mean, they didn't say that specifically, but they said they basically weren't interested in buying the building because they couldn't get all the stuff that they claimed was decontaminated, was contaminated with anthrax. Uh, that's very interesting to me because Rudy Giuliani also has a history with destroying the World Trade Center crime scene um, before any forensic investigation actually took place. Um, he could have decided as a person with experience in law and investigations to keep that crime scene, to you know at least keep it safe somewhere in a warehouse, to keep the debris somewhere. Instead, he decided to, to basically recycle it very quickly after the attacks. Um, and a lot of people blame him for making it impossible to truly find out what happened and how those towers collapsed. Um, it, it really does rest on his shoulders. He made that decision to do that. Now, the FBI and other investigative bodies should have stepped in and said, hey, you can't destroy this evidence, but they let him do it. Um, and it was his decision to do it. Now, that's an odd thing that Rudy Giuliani was possibly involved in destroying evidence for not just 9-11, but also the 2001 anthrax attacks, and that he was angry that he didn't have access to the entire stockpile of everything in that building, and he refused to purchase it for that reason. Now, just going back to this idea of the deep state, Trump versus the deep state, I mean, I, without getting too conspiratorial sounding, I mean, just look up Rudy Giuliani's connections to these things that I'm bringing up, and come back to me and say that Trump is somehow in opposition to this deep state. Um, if anything, the best argument you can make is that there's some kind of factions of the deep state fighting with each other. And Rudy Giuliani is in one faction, and there are people in another faction. Um, but it's, uh, it is odd you know, and maybe this is just because I'm so obsessed with the 2001 anthrax attacks, but it is odd that here we have Robert Mueller investigating Trump, who was instrumental in covering up that, that investigation as well during the Bush administration. So yeah, I mean, it's possible I'm just seeing all this stuff through this lens and I'm obsessed with it. But at the same time, it is, it is strange, a strange thing that's happening right now. Um, and that Rudy Giuliani is 
going on television and and saying some very controversial things about what is possible with Trump's legal predicament. Um, and up until, I don't know, maybe a few months ago, um, even people like Jonathan Turley were sort of, and Jonathan Turley is a, a lawyer, um, a civil liberties lawyer, I believe. He, he used to go on Keith Oberman constantly. So Jonathan Turley had this to say, and this is, Jonathan Turley is a very smart dude, and I don't know where he stands politically, but I feel like I got a little bit annoyed with him when he was deflecting certain criticisms on Trump maybe like a few months ago, but I can't quite remember what it was that I, that I was annoyed with. So Jonathan Turley wrote an article after Rudy Giuliani's appearance on the Sean Hannity show, which um, was quite ridiculous if you haven't watched it. Um, a lot of people were speculating that he accidentally let things slip on the Sean Hannity show. But when I watched it, I felt that it, he didn't let anything slip, that it was actually some kind of coordinated strategy where he was prepared to acknowledge that Trump paid off Stormy Daniels and that he funneled it through a law firm. Sean Hannity acted completely unprepared to hear that. He was just like, oh, I didn't know that. It was, um, it's very interesting to watch the video clip. I recommend doing it. Obviously, Sean Hannity didn't know that was coming. Um, but the question is, did Trump know that was coming? Did Trump and Rudy Giuliani have a conversation where that somehow Rudy Giuliani convinced him that that was going to be a good idea to drop that on TV? I don't know. A lot of people seem to think it was a complete accident. Um, but yet Rudy Giuliani repeated the same thing on like three other interviews. So Jonathan Turley says on in an article from May 7th, um, despite the well-earned criticism of Rudy Giuliani for his first interview as President Trump's new counsel, the fact is that Giuliani was given a daunting task. The legal team had clearly concluded it can no longer factually or legally defend the president's prior, prior blanket of denial of an affair or knowledge of the agreement with porn star Stormy Daniels. Giuliani failed in the pivot rather spectacularly and might have done the impossible in making Cohen look competent in comparison. Giuliani later corrected his statements and Trump went public to rebuke him to get his facts straight. Trump added the general advice to learn before you speak. It's a lot easier. Um, so this is something I guess I wasn't aware of, that Trump actually publicly criticized Giuliani for what he says. Turley goes on to say, the danger, however, is far greater than a lawyer learning about a case live on television like some legal reality show. The problem for Trump is that the Daniels controversy could supply the obstruction case that has long evaded special counsel, um, special counsel Robert Mueller. The Trump team appeared to finally recognize that Cohen had put the president in the worst possible position with his payment of hush money and incriminating past statements. Giuliani then took a bad position and made it far, far worse. He tried to reframe the payment of the 130000 from a gift to a loan from Cohen, thereby tripping a series of new potential and criminal and ethical violations without getting the president out of the campaign finance threat. The greatest danger of the campaign finance allegations, however, is not the charge itself, these violations are rarely criminally charged, as shown in the failed prosecution of former Democratic candidate John Edwards. Rather, the greatest danger is the response to the investigation into campaigns, campaign finance violations or fraud. Turley ends by saying, Trump has always portrayed himself as a vicious counterpuncher, 
However, the federal code has a crime designed specifically for counterpunching in the midst of a criminal investigation. That is how a porn star could succeed where a special counsel fails. Indeed, if Trump is not careful, that is how a porn star could take down the president. And I, I, I don't I really necessarily appreciate his tone there at the end. It kind of sounds almost like he's mocking her for being a porn star. Um, so... I think this is just telling because Turley continues to assert that Rudy Giuliani just really has no fucking idea that he was just talking about that. A lot of the things he's saying in public are just run counter to the understanding of how the law works. This is from the Washington post, Jonathan Turley, May 18th. Giuliani says Mueller can't indict. It might go better for Trump if he does. They can't indict, because if they did, it would be dismissed quickly. There is no precedent for a president being indicted. So declared President Trump's lawyer, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who eagerly recounted this week how special counsel Robert Mueller has assured Trump's legal team that Mueller won't try to indict the president while he remains in office. A decision based, presumably on a long-standing Department of Justice policy that holds that a sitting president can't be indicted. Plenty of legal scholars, including me, disagree with the basis of that policy. Nothing in the Constitution bars indictment of a sitting president. But even if Mueller opts to follow that questionable policy, it may not be the legal victory Giuliani seems to think it is. Trump might fare better if he is indicted and not impeached. Indeed, for Mueller, the question might only come down to the order, not the merits of these actions. In other words, if Trump could find himself both impeached and indicted, an impeachment could even make such an indictment more likely. While many legal, legal observers disagree on the underlying question of the constitutionality of indicting a sitting president, there is close to universal agreement that it is better for the country to have presidential impeachments precede indictments. This is however, only a matter of sequencing. Even if Mueller does not seek an indictment for constitutional reasons, he could easily do so if Trump is removed from office or after the president completes his term. That sequence would work against Trump's interest as a criminal defendant. Not only is the criminal process fairer to defendants, but also the fact of a prior impeachment proceeding could be deadly for a later criminal defense. Faced with an impeachment, a president must decide whether to testify at the risk of anything he says can be later used in a criminal trial. And there's the potential that in the course of impeachment proceedings, otherwise privileged or confidential information can become part of the public record and thus accessible to prosecutions in a later indictment. In Trump's case, if the eventual report of the special counsel's finding led to impeachment, Mueller could sit back and watch things play out while gathering the fruits of the impeachment process to be used in a subsequent indictment. If an indictment were to come before the impeachment proceedings, that would give Republicans in Congress political cover to vote against impeachment under the rationale that they would want to allow the courts to work through the issues. The president and his supporters in Congress could also claim that it would be unfair and unduly burdensome if Trump had to both face an impeachment and prosecution. Now, Turley um, made an interesting turnaround recently when Trump started accusing the FBI of planting a mole inside of his campaign, which was apparently reported by the New York Times recently. And it's a, that's a very interesting change of events, perhaps. And I think it can all really be summed up by this one line in in, uh, in Turley's article. Basically, Rudy Giuliani is, is now going on TV saying that James Comey should definitely be prosecuted now because there's apparently an FBI mole inside the Trump campaign. Turley responds with, the record does not currently support such a criminal conspiracy. 
However, if Trump and his counsel can be accused of overplaying the known facts, the media can be equally accused of ignoring the implications of the known facts. And Turley's right. If, if this is true, it should be of serious concern that the Obama administration used secret counterintelligence powers to target officials in the campaign of the opposing party. Absolutely. Now, the problem is, I mean, even if all of this is true, ends up being true that Trump, what, a lot of what Trump is saying, the color or the character of it is generally true. Trump really did overplay the facts and overplay his hand in this area. But it, and again, it almost doesn't matter because most of his Republican supporters have long believed that this idea that Obama administration was wiretapping Trump the whole time, you know, unmasking of what's her face, Susan Rice, you know, Mike Cernovich acted like that was a giant scoop, even though it was basically, um, you know, some obviously some Trump administration leak that was leaked to Eli Lake also, which is very strange that someone would leak it both to Cernovich and Eli Lake at the same time. Um, the writing concurrent story is basically saying the exact same thing. Who knows? I mean, I I am sort of more leaning towards the idea that the Mueller investigation in general is a witch hunt of some kind, um, especially if it was based on this idea of Russian collusion to begin with. I strongly believe that. Um, whether Trump has committed no actual crimes, though, I find that very hard to believe. Whether, you know, if will it be unfair if Trump goes down for something that other people don't go down for normally, you know, that other people do? Yeah, probably. But if he goes down for something like paying off Stormy Daniels $130,000, I, like I said, I'd be fine with it. Because to me, that just shows he's a fucking coward. Uh, I mean, if Obama wrote about almost shooting heroin in his book and Trump couldn't just, you know, let a porn star, I, I had sex with Donald Trump accusation go out there and and sort of affect him if he if he was too afraid of that then to me that just shows he's really a coward and that's really sad yeah i think he deserves to go down for that if that's what happens but you know if this investigation started in the first place mainly because of like this dossier and this fbi this fbi meddling and all this shit then yeah it is it is a witch hunt and it really does vindicate a lot of what trump you know is to in a lot of people's eyes because it is a witch hunt yet even though it's a witch hunt to me, I still think Trump is a piece of shit and is doing absolutely horrible things. And I don't want to martyr him. I don't want to make him seem like he's, you know, being unfairly investigated. But and on some level, he is. So it, that's the problem for me, as I have no reason to defend the guy. Um, I think he's a horrible person. It's It's unfathomable how horrible he is. But yet, you know, they, he does have a point in this regard. And I hate to give them something that makes them look right. Like Rudy Giuliani, when he talks about this aspect of it, he's right. And that's what sucks, is because Rudy Giuliani is a shithead. Probably you know, involved in murder, covering up murder at the very least. Like, I don't want this guy to seem right on TV. So it pains me um, that I have to agree somewhat with this idea. And it's also fascinating that, that right now... Um, even even a lot of neocons, uh, David Axelrod had a little interesting interchange with Bill Crystal on on Twitter, and this is interesting because David Axelrod and Bill Crystal are friends now. If you don't remember David Axelrod, he was sort of Obama's Karl Rove um, for the first term, I believe his first term. They were both sort of talking about this idea that if you respect the rule of law, you know, unlike Trump apologists um, who don't respect it. If you respect the rule of law, you will respect the fact that, you know, if, if Mueller concludes his investigation by saying no collusion and no indictments, 
we have to respect that. Um, and I just thought that was a fascinating thing because Bill Crystal has been saying the whole time, you know, that he thinks there's collusion and that there's going to be indictments and all this shit. So for him to just say that now and try to get ahead of potentially no indictments, um, it just shows kind of how clever he is and he's already trying to rebrand. So eventually he's going to try to rebrand as a guy who, yeah, I, I knew there was probably no collusion, but Trump is a real nasty guy, you know, and I, I, th- I thought that they should try to look for something anyways. Um, and David Axelrod saying that now too, which is, is very interesting. How many people have egg on their faces if there is no collusion or indictments? I was planning on going into a little bit the, the U.S. Embassy move to Jerusalem and the fact that over 62 Palestinians have been killed you know, something like on on the on the single day, I believe. Um, it was a ridiculous amount of, of Palestinians gunned down this time. Um, it's been happening since the Great March of Return. It's been happening less frequently, but on the day the embassy moved, I mean, it was a massacre. Uh, it was insane. The, the, I guess the silver lining is the timing of it happened at such a time where Abby had just gone on the Joe Rogan program gotten over a million views for a 30-minute long, beautifully done, articulate, I mean, amazing um, Palestinian rights rant on the Joe Rogan show, where Joe Rogan himself, at one moment in the show, said, without any prompting from Abby, Abby didn't feed him any line or anything like this, he just said, wow, it reminds me a lot of what the way, you know, Nazi Germany, like the way Israel treats the Palestinians. And when I heard Joe Rogan say that, I was just like, wow, that's going to get Joe in some trouble. You know, Abby said that years ago, um, and Jamie Kerchick went on MSNBC to, to use that as, you know, an implication that she's insane for suggesting something like that. Now, I guess this, that, I say it's a silver lining because I believe that having a video go that viral um, during such a crucial time about an issue that's barely talked about, um, having a million views extremely important and i i hope that it's already changing minds of people who watch the joe rogan program i noticed that a fellow comedian a fellow stand-up judd apatow who just did a great gary channeling miniseries documentary that i would recommend checking out he is actually taking quite big risks on twitter constantly tweeting about palestinian rights and how horrific the israeli government is for implying that all these palestinians are basically terrorists and that they're using their babies and their women as human shields. And here there are videos of, of Israeli snipers shooting at journalists and stuff. I mean, there's, it's blatantly on video. There's videos of IDF soldiers beating up paramedics as they're trying to cart people off who got shot. So I'm not going to go into it too much on this podcast because I'm sure Abby and I will talk about it the next time we get together. Abby knows so much more than I do. She's She has encyclopedic knowledge about what's going on. Yeah, I recommend anybody who hasn't checked that out, watch the first 30 minutes of that Joe Rogan um, Experience podcast with Abby. It's episode number 1111. And I was really happy also that, that Joe got his Sam Harris appearance out of the way a few episodes before Abby. So Abby kind of had the floor. I mean, there hasn't really been anyone else on who has the balls to try to you know, debate with what she's saying about Israel after the fact, because, I mean, frankly, all the shit she said is completely provable and backed up by facts. You can't really dispute anything she's saying. You know, maybe some of the opinions she put out you could disagree with, but not any of the facts. I think that that's a very good thing. 
And I do think that there is a tipping point being reached right now where, you know, because Trump is, is making this so brazen and so disgusting, this embassy move to Jerusalem, he is making more people turn against Israel. Uh, because Netanyahu is just sucking Trump's dick so hard, it's making people turn against Netanyahu and Trump more. I mean, I'm sorry, and Israel more, and that's a good thing. Um, we need more people to turn against this apartheid state and practice uh, boycott, divestment, sanctions against it. I also just wanted to briefly mention Margot Kidder's passing. Um, Margot Kidder was one of my favorite actresses. She passed away at the age of 69. Um, her cause of death is still unknown. But she was an activist who, who didn't really get much attention for her activism. She was a mental health um, activist. She was a Standing Rock activist. Yeah, um, it, it's a very, very sad thing um, that she died very young. I mean, the 69 is, is pretty young. And I feel like her career suffered because she was essentially a woman who had a, a mental health crisis during a time when that could ruin your career. And um, I, I believe that, you know, for women, especially in Hollywood, that would, that would be a lot harder on your career. I mean, look at how Robert Downey Jr. was able to bounce back after he basically passed out in someone's home for being high on heroin. Um, like pass out in like a total stranger's house, broken, breaking and entering. It's sad uh, that she didn't have more of a bounce back after that. Um, the Superman movies were really her most famous roles. You know, I'm not downplaying the, the Superman movies. I mean, I think that her role in the first Superman movie is absolutely groundbreaking. It's kind of like a woman empowerment, like very feminist type of portrayal of Lois Lane. I would say that her portrayal of Lois Lane in Superman is more risque and sort of more adult than anything we see really in a modern superhero movie. I mean, I'm trying to think of any superhero movie besides Deadpool, which is rated R, that we've seen recently where the characters actually have sex or, you know, are lustful or anything like that. And I can't really think of any examples. Maybe like a quip or two in some of the Marvel movies, you know, like a dick joke here or, you know, um, I like Pepper Potts whispering in Iron Man's ear or something dirty that the audience doesn't get to hear. You know, that's the best we get in those movies. But go back and watch um, this wonderful scene. That'll just show you what I'm talking about. I mean, Superman is rated PG. It came out in 1979. It was considered a mainstream film for, you know, family children of all ages, there is a scene in it where when Lois Lane first interviews Superman, she's wearing a transparent nightgown, she's essentially smoking a cigarette and drinking a glass of wine on her balcony, essentially trying to get Superman to fuck her. And it's just a, a fantastic interchange. It just really goes to show you how sort of sexually repressed and puritanical like mainstream Hollywood cinema has become since you know 1979. That's a, just a couple years before I was born. We'll go back and watch that movie. Uh, she's great in it. But what I wanted to talk about next, you know, let's go to another um, sort of area of performance. And this is Trump's desire to be seen in the lens of history as a peacemaker between North Korea and South Korea. I always mentioned Timothy Chirac every time I mention stuff about North Korea. 
Um, I recommend following him. Um, he's tw- tweeting stuff all the time about it. Um, he's been on the ground there multiple times. He's interviewed the South Korean president. Guy's all over. Um, and he's getting a lot of recognition recently for his work in this area. He's been on the Chris Hayes show, which is a new thing. He's getting praise from more mainstream journalists who, even though he's had some very controversial opinions, they cannot ignore the contribution that he's making in terms of his North Korea coverage. Very important stuff. He was very optimistic about this potential of Trump and uh, brokering a deal between North and South Korea. He's he's not a pro-Trump guy at all, but I think he started to become very optimistic, especially when it was sort of shown to the world, oh, wow, you know, Trump is now saying he's going to meet with Kim Jong-un. Like, that's a big deal. And look, Pompeo already did meet with Kim Jong-un. Who's the, here's the picture. And what, what was discovered was, and this is just me, my analysis about what happened was, Trump was quoted as saying that that looked really good on TV. That looked really good. Like the picture of Pompeo and Kim Jong-un. And he wasn't wrong. He knows what makes a real impact sort of on, uh, in the American public's mind. And I know damn well that Trump wants to be the first president since the Korean War to walk into North Korea and shake hands with Kim Jong-un on video, like live on film, you know, broadcast across the world on news channels. I know that. I don't think that's hard to guess that Trump really wants that. I mean, think about anything else he wants, you know, the wall... I think on some level he's sort of conceded the wall. He knows that it's not really going to be a legit wall like the, the Great Wall of China. I don't know, but I do think that having something like a handshake on video with King Jong-un would be the biggest prize he could get. I mean, it's almost a bigger prize than the presidency itself in a way. But what happened was this all seemed to be poised to happen Kim Jong-un and Trump were going to meet face-to-face and that North Korea had agreed to a denuclearization plan, meaning they were going to get rid of their nuclear weapons program to make a deal with the United States to get along with South Korea. Um, South Korea and North Korea have been talking, have been much more friendly than they have been. Um, Pretty amazing stuff. Um, a lot of people are giving credit to Trump for ha- using the big stick approach for threatening, you know, acting threatening, and that's why North Korea is shaping up. I think that's complete bullshit. I think that it actually is the opposite. It shows that North Korea and South Korea are trying to patch things up without Trump. And on some level, I do think there is some sort of weird celebrity fixation coming from the North Korean government in general. I mean, that's why... They requested Bill Clinton, you know, at one point when he wasn't in office. That's why Dennis Rodman is so popular there. I mean, so I could see that Trump might have some kind of effect in that region in that regard. But that's it. This idea that his big stick approach, his threats, did anything to help? Absolutely not true. That is fundamentally a neoconservative paradigm that I think is fundamentally incorrect. But there's a lot of regular people who think that Trump did a good thing and that's finally all working in his favor now because he's tough. So that seemed to be happening. But all of a sudden, John Bolton, he goes on a Jake Tapper show and says that he's happy that the North Koreans want to do this because this is the Libyan model for sort of, you know, coming around to being like friends of the United States. 
I can't imagine that he's t- dumb. You know, he he must knew, know what Libya evokes. It evokes the Gaddafi bending over backwards to make himself look like he's on a threat to the United States and then all of a sudden getting bombed by NATO and then murdered by rebels that we funded. So for John Bolton to say the Libya model is what we want to use for North Korea and knowing that the North Korean leadership is watching that interview, I wouldn't be surprised at all if John Bolton purposely wanted to thwart this process um, at the behest of Trump. But yet, I don't know, because I do think Trump really does want this photo op for his ego and to go down in history. So that happened. And right around that same time, South Korea and the United States were planning to do a Max Thunder exercise, which was scheduled to happen right before the talks, which simulates an attack on North Korea. North Korea was obviously furious about this, and they had something to say about it. And let me read to you what their actual official statement was. Um, This is from the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs of the DPRK. His name is Kim Kui Guan. Kim Jong-un, chairman of the State Affairs Commission of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, made a strategic decision to put an end to the unpleasant history of the DPRK-U.S. relations and met met Pompeo, U.S. Secretary of State, for two times during his visit to our country and took very important and broad-minded steps for peace and stability in the Korean Peninsula and the world. In response to the noble intention of Chairman Kim Jong-un, President Trump stated his position for terminating the historically deep-rooted hostility and improving the relations between DPRK and the U.S. I appreciated the position positively with an expectation that upcoming DPRK-U.S. summit would be a big step forward for catalyzing detente on the Korean Peninsula and building a great future. But now prior to the DPRK-U.S. summit, unbridled remarks provoking the other side of dialogue are recklessly made in the U.S., and I am totally disappointed at these constitute extremely unjust behavior. High-ranking officials of the White House and Department of State, including Bolton, White House National Security Advisor, are letting loose the assertions of so-called Libya model of nuclear abandonment. It is essentially a manifestation of awfully sinister move to impose on our dignified state the destiny of Libya or Iraq, which has been collapsed due to yielding the whole of other countries to big powers. I cannot suppress indignation at such moves of the U.S. and harbor doubt about the U.S. sincerity for improved DPRK-U.S. relations through sound dialogue and negotiations. World knows too well that our country is neither Libya nor Iraq, which have met miserable fate. It is absolutely absurd to dare compare the DPRK, a nuclear weapon state, to Libya, which had been at the initial stage of nuclear development. We shed light on the quality of Bolton already in the past, and we do not hide our feeling of repugnance towards him. If the Trump administration fails to recall the lessons learned from the past when the DPRUS talks had to undergo twists and setbacks owing to the likes of Bolton, and turns its ear to the advice of quasi-quote patriots who insist on Libya mode and the like, prospects of upcoming DPRK-US summit and overall DPRK-US relations will be crystal clear. We have already stated our intention for denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and made clear on several occasions that precondition for denuclearization is to put an end to anti-DPRK hostility policy and nuclear threats and blackmail of the United States. But now... 
the U.S. is miscalculating the magnanimity and broad-minded initiatives of the DPRK as signs of weakness and trying to embellish and advertise as if these are the product of its sanctions and pressure. The U.S. is trumpeting as if it would offer economic compensation and benefit in case we abandon nukes. We have never had any expectation of U.S. support in carrying out our economic construction and will not at all make such a deal in the future, too. It is a ridiculous comedy to see that the Trump administration claiming to take a different road from the previous administrations still clings to the outdated policy on the DPRK, a policy pursued by previous administrations at the time when the DPRK was at the stage of nuclear development. If President Trump follows in the footsteps of his predecessors, he will be recorded as a, mere tr- as a more tragic and unsuccessful president than his predecessors, far from his initial ambition to make unprecedented success. If the Trump administration takes an approach to the DPRK-US summit with sincerity for improved DPRK-US relations, it will receive a deserved response from us. However, if the U.S. is trying to drive us into a corner to force our unilateral nuclear abandonment, we'll no longer be interested in such dialogue and cannot but reconsider our proceeding and cannot but reconsider our proceeding to the U- to the DPRK U.S. summit. So I was going to offer some long form commentary on what's exactly going on between the these talks and this you know, proposal to denuclearize on, on the DPRK side. But I thought that the statement that I just read from the DPRK um, says it all. It really, I really don't need to say anything else. So, yeah, I mean, they even bring up just how silly it is that the Trump administration is trying to act like they're diff- they have a different approach than previous administrations. Um, and they, they despise Bolton. They bring him up repeatedly. Um, they think that he essentially just tarnishes the whole attempt to do this, and they're not wrong. So if Trump is serious about doing this, um, you have to wonder why was he idiotic enough to hire someone like John Bolton to be his national security advisor? It's just really, really, I mean, let's just give Trump the benefit of the doubt that he wants to make peace, you know, which I don't personally believe that he is some kind of like anti-war peacemaker. I mean, it just if that's the case, then he's a fucking idiot for hiring Bolton. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, hiring Bolton shows me that that's not the case. And it really should show you too. So I don't really have any patience anymore for people who think that Trump is a peacemaker. I think that it's fiction. And I feel, frankly, bad for people who are still holding on to that concept. I mean, he already sabotaged his own North Korea talks by sending crazy John Bolton out on TV to say he's using, they're using the Libya model for North Korea. So just a little update to what's been going on with this North Korea summit that was supposed to take place. Um, since the time I recorded the rest of this podcast... Um, it was in a very different place. But in the last couple of days since I recorded this, quite a lot has transpired. And let me just catch you up to what's, um, what's been going on. So we can really all trace this back to John Bolton's Libya model comment um, that he made on the Jake Tapper show. Um, but what happened was right after that, that letter that the DPRK spokesperson sent the United States, um, Trump actually was fairly restrained in his public comments. Um, he seemed disappointed by it, 
like you could tell he was like his feelings were hurt by it. But considering the way he's acted before, he was extremely uh, restrained acting and didn't tweet really anything about how offended he was by the letter, anything like that. Um, his comment was sort of a, like, um, he's like, well, you know, we got that letter and it said some, you know, it, it's, it was pretty harsh, but, uh, but as far as we know, the summit's still on and, and, you know, it's still happening. So, you know, they haven't pulled out of it kind of almost acting like it was just bellicose rhetoric from North Korea's part and they weren't taking it seriously. Um, but you could tell he was, he was offended by it. I mean, Trump is not very good at hiding his emotional reactions. That's one skill that he does not have. And you could tell he is clearly um, unhappy about it um, and kind of scoffing at it a little bit as well. Um, but what happened was after, the, after that letter came out, um, another uh, surprise neocon um, kind of popped his head up. Uh, that's part of the Trump administration to uh, derail the relations in the summit even more. Mike Pence, who, if you remember correctly, Mike Pence was one of the only Republicans to still be claiming that Saddam Hussein sent anthrax through our mail as late as like 2005, um, after Ari Fleischer in the Bush administration already tamped down all those rumors publicly. Mike Pence went on Fox News with Martha McClellan, McCallum, McCallum, um, trying my best here to pronounce it. Pence said there was some talk about the Libya model. Okay, so you know that phrase alone. Oh, okay, he's about to walk back some of the statements. This is this is Pence going out there about to sort of clean up John Bolton's mess. He continues, as the president made clear, this will only end like the Libya model ended if Kim Jong Un doesn't make a deal. Okay. So that's uh that's pretty different than what <laughs> what John Bolton was saying and also it's basically implying that John Bolton was making a threat in the form of a of a statement that was supposed to be positive. If you follow the logical chain of events here with these two statements, the one Bolton made and then what Trump actually said later where he's like we're not working with the Libby model, that was what Trump actually said to some reporters. He's like I don't know where that came from. Without throwing Bolton under the bus, Trump did that. And then Pence goes on to say this. So he says, as the president made clear, this will only end like the Libyan model of Kim Jong-un doesn't make a deal. Unless I'm missing a statement that Trump made in between uh, some of these other statements I brought up, I really don't understand what Pence is saying here other than just reinforcing the, the, the main fear that uh, North Korean government officials had about John Bolton making that comment, that it was actually some kind of threat, va- barely veiled threat. Um, what Pence is saying here is directly a threat. He is turning something that comes off as a veiled threat, or maybe even something that could be perceived as a slip-up on Bolton's part, which obviously it wasn't. Um, but Pence is taking it out of that level of ambiguity and placing it directly into the wheelhouse of, this is a fucking threat. And then, and then this, it gets even crazier. So Pence even continued... Um, after McCollum said that some people may have seen Bolton's comment as a threat, Pence said, I think it's more of a fact. So this is just how much crazy talk they're doing. So they're, they're that, I mean, Trump is this person who claims he knows the art of the deal. And I'll go into later how all these morons on Twitter, including Donald Trump Jr., 
and Jack Posobiec are saying that the, the the summit is a success because art of the deal, baby. Um, even though the writer of Art of the Deal actually said that Trump had alarmingly fascist tendencies, and he was also very alarmed by the fact that Trump had a zero attention span when he was ghostwriting his book, that he had no passion or hobbies other than just talking to people on the phone and being an asshole. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, strange that, I mean, the, the, even the book itself is phony. Trump doesn't have know the Art of the Deal. His businesses were suffering, so he just turned himself into the brand and started like licensing steaks and water and all that shit. He doesn't know the art of the deal. That's the sad part about this. I mean, in, in this case, basically, this was Trump's art of the deal. Um, using his celebrity status to sort of woo Kim Jong-un into this idea of a summit and then letting a fucking PNAC neocon pull the rug out from the whole thing. Great, great art. You really expressed your art of the deal there, Trump. Which which really does beg the question again, was this intentional? I mean, could we even trust that Trump wanted the I mean, yeah, he does want it for his own ego, but maybe this maybe the whole thing was meant to be um sabotage from the very beginning. It's it's kinda hard to tell with Trump if this is just incompetence or what exactly is happening here. So what happened right after that Pence statement is a North Korean official um responded. To what Mike Pence said. Um, this is from CNN. Cho Sun Hoi, a vice minister in the North Korean foreign ministry, said if the U.S. continued on its current path, she would suggest on, to North Korea's leadership that they reconsider the planned summit between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Whether the U.S. will meet us at a random room or encounter us at a nuclear-to-nuclear showdown is entirely dependent upon the decision and behavior of the United States. She also continued to call Pence a political dummy for comparing Libya to North Korea. She noted that Libya's nuclear program was in its early stages when it came to the negotiating table while North Korea spent years developing its nuclear weapons. As a person involved in the, U- in the U.S. affairs, she says, I cannot suppress my surprise at such ignorant and stupid remarks gushing out of the mouth from the vice president. And in a show of good faith and goodwill, North Koreans have already released what the U.S. describes as political prisoners in North Korea. They already invited the media to this sort of spectacle, this this show of them blowing up um, a nuclear testing site. Um, All these people from the Western press were allowed into North Korea to film this, and um, it was all over the news. So what happened was, after this, uh, North Korea's Cho Sun Hoi um, made these statements... What happened was Trump, of course, got upset. He got upset. He, his feelings were really hurt. So this is from the Washington Post. It's called The Letter Trump Sent to Kim Jong-un Canceling the Summit, annotated. So basically, I'll just read to you what it says here. Um, After weeks of receiving and even appearing to encourage chants of Nobel ahead of the planned historic meeting with North Korea dictator Kim Jong-un, President Trump on Thursday abruptly canceled the June 12th summit. His withdrawal comes days after wavering by North Korea and then the United States on attending the summit. That's not actually true at all. Um, Amber Phillips, the writer of this, uh, is not being accurate here. North Korea did not waver on the summit. They did not. <laughs> I just read to you their long statement. It's very clear why they were upset at what John Bolton said. Um, it seemed like the U.S. was trying to sabotage the summit. Uh, North Korea was actually doing everything 
right according to the way these things are normally supposed to be done. North Korea issued a statement Wednesday saying the United States should meet us at a meeting room or encounter us at a nuclear-to-nuclear showdown, blah, blah, blah. Trump hints at all that with his letter to Kim. Read it below with our annotations. Okay, so this is from May 24th, a day before I'm recording this update. It starts with His His Excellency Kim Jong-un. Dear Mr. Chairman, We greatly appreciate your time, patience, and effort with respect to our recent negotiations and discussions relative to a summit long sought by both parties. I was very much looking forward to being there with you. Sadly, based on the tremendous anger and open hostility displayed in your most recent statement, I feel it is inappropriate at this time to have this long-planned meeting. You talk about your nuclear capabilities, but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. It's it's actually just awkward to read Trump even saying the word God. It doesn't even process the fact that this guy who has affairs with adult film actresses and uh, talks about grabbing women by the pussy would actually like write God in the statement or is even remotely Christian. It's, it's cartoonish. Obviously it's uh it's all a ruse. Trump continues. I felt a wonderful dialogue was building up between you and me. And ultimately it is only that dialogue that matters. Someday I look very much forward to meeting you. In the meantime, I want to thank you for the release of the hostages who are now at home with their families. That was a beautiful gesture and was very much appreciated. If you change your mind having to do with this most important summit, please do not hesitate to call or write. The world, the North Korea in particular, has lost a great opportunity for lasting peace and great prosperity and wealth. This missed opportunity is a truly sad moment in history. Yours truly, or sorry, sincerely yours, Donald J. Trump. So I wanted to hone in on a particular part of this email, which is obviously a reference to what John Bolton and possibly what Mike Pence said about the Libya model. Trump specifically says in his letter, I felt a wonderful dialogue was building up between you and me, and ultimately, it is only that dialogue that matters. So read between the lines there. It's not very hard to see that Trump is basically saying that don't listen to what my advisors say on TV when I go send them out to go to TV appearances. Only listen to me, even when my advisors are making direct, overt threats, military threats against your country. Um, that's, a, that's a ridiculous fucking ask, Donald. I mean, would you be okay with... Uh, I mean, this is the thing, actually, uh, that that statement... I mean, came from another person as well. It didn't come directly from Kim Jong-un. So really these inflammatory statements or whatever coming from the North Korean government are not coming directly from Kim Jong-un either. So, you know, I don't even really know what Trump is exactly saying there, but I think that's what he's meaning to say is that the North Korean government's taking the statements of Bolton and Pence too seriously. Um, But they should be because, you know, just like this North Korea said in that letter, our repugnance of John Bolton is not a secret. Like, I mean, they've known who John Bolton was or is. Um, they've known about John Bolton probably since the Iraq war. So, so I guess the biggest news since we did our last podcast is that Trump finally pulled out of the Iran deal in violation of the deal itself. Uh, right 
at the same time as they're trying to negotiate some kind of peace treaty denuclearization of North Korea. Um, I'm not sure if the timing is relevant since the deal was sort of up for renewal by a certain date. Um, and I don't know the exact details of, of that, but apparently Trump had a limited amount of time to decide if he was going to pull out of the deal or not, apparently, because it's sort of auto-renewed itself. Um, so either the timing was intentional somehow, and that Bolton and Trump were trying to sort of show the North Koreans that they really mean business by violating a deal that they had agreed to or that the previous administration had agreed to. If that was the case, it's a strange psychological ploy that would essentially sabotage any attempt for the North Koreans and South Koreans to have some kind of reunification, or even symbolically, um, or you know, especially something like a denuclearization. So it's interesting that this is happening all around the same time, but it could be just completely coincidental and not re- and not um, notable that timing. But even still, it's it's unfortunate timing that Trump is fulfilling one of his worst campaign promises, um, you know, other than banning Muslims from entering the country or building the wall. Um, This is arguably one of his worst campaign promises. And this is something that he actually promised um, long before sort of the Israeli lobby in APAC started to court him and that he kind of went over to their side fully. Um, that's noteworthy because that means that Trump always had, even before he got sort of wooed by the Israeli lobby, um, he always had sort of plans in line with certain hardcore neoconservatives. And like I was saying at the beginning of this broadcast, there was a neocon split um, during the Obama administration where some of the anti-Iran people who wanted Iranian regime changes, their top priority sort of split off from more of the general consensus of neoconservatism that wanted to sort of pivot towards Europe and even China. I wanted to pivot, I mean, when I say Europe, I mean Russia um, and and NATO activity and stuff like that. Some of these other neocons are still very fixated on Iranian regime change, like John Bolton, who had his own super PAC called the John Bolton PAC, which spent millions of dollars trying to smear anybody who was um, in favor of that deal. Um, and specifically one of the people he got to flip. And this just really shows how much Rand Paul is extremely spineless. And he just really does um, roll over for these forces. Um, John Bolton, through his advertising money in his pack, uh, released negative ads about Rand Paul showing a mushroom cloud exploding with a family eating at the dinner table. With the egging on of Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton, who is Bill Crystal's puppet, um, if you if you think that's up for dispute, please look it up. Um, I recommend that you do research that. Um, with the help of those people, egging Rand Paul on, he flipped and wrote a letter rejecting the deal. Um, that was essentially a, a kind of a PNAC letter that was basically constructed by Bill Crystal and his puppet Tom Cotton. Extremely unfortunate, you know that. That, that Rand Paul is one of the only people who normally stands up to this type of stuff, just completely rolling over like that. And and But we saw recently that he did another very similar thing where he rolled over to Pompeo and said, oh, I just had a private conversation with Pompeo and Trump, and they both agree that the Iraq war was a disaster um, and they're anti-intervention. So I trust both of them now in, term, in terms of their foreign policy. 
I don't know what Rand is thinking, but it's just ridiculously fucking naive of him to to believe that, especially after Trump appointed John Bolton. Kind of unbelievable, but again, it's just a testament to how weak Rand Paul is when it really comes down to it. Um, we Nobody can really depend on him to really stand in the way of these things. Um, he's very easily blows in the wind or is just convinced um, by internal pressure. Um, he is definitely not his father. Let's just let's just put it leave it there. Uh, the fantastic low blog has an article up on their website right now that was written on May fourteenth um, by Jim Loeb and Eli Clifton called "Is GOP Mideast Policy Bought and Paid for by Lacudist Republican Group?" Mega billionaire and the Trump campaign's single biggest donor Sheldon Adelson has pledged to contribute thirty million in to the Congressional Leadership Fund, Super PAC, to defend the Republican majority in the House of Representatives in the 2018 election cycle. Having already influenced Trump's policy on the Middle East, what more does Edelson expect to receive in return for his investment? Edelson's pledge, a commitment reportedly reportedly brokered by former Senator Norm Coleman, the current chairman of the Republican Jewish Coalition, came just a few days before Donald Trump announced that the U.S. is withdrawing from a.k.a. violating the Iran nuclear deal. Withdrawal has been a top RJC priority from the moment the deal was concluded in 2015. Adelson's commitment more than doubled the amount of money the CLF, the most important Republican super PAC for House races by far, will have to spend in the coming months. At another half million dollars contributed so far this year by Bernard Marcus, the Trump campaign's second biggest donor in 2016, and members of the RJC board of directors currently account for 56% of all donations to the CLF for the current cycle. Adelson has yet to commit to the CLF's counterpart, the Senate Leadership Fund. But thus far this year, Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, has contributed $4 million. Another former RJC board member, Paul Singer, provided another $1 million for a total of $5 million, or 20% of all funds raised by the, L- the SLF in the current cycle. Make no mistake, for Bibi Netanyahu, also a major beneficiary of Adelson's largesse, Maintaining Republican majorities in both houses of Congress is critically important, given Democrats' growing alienation from his increasingly right-wing government. As detailed by Eli Clifton last year, the three billionaires contributed a total of more than $40 million to various pro-Trump political groups and causes in the 2016 election cycle, nor were they stingy about ensuring the retention of a Republican-dominated Congress. Together, they contributed a whopping $65 million to the SLF and the CLF at the same time. That was just shy of half of all donations contributed to the two super PACs during that cycle. The cherry on top came last week when Trump announced Washington's withdrawal from the JCPOA, the deal negotiated by the Obama administration with Iran and the P5 plus one, Britain, France, China, Russia, and the US plus Germany, to curb Tehran's nuclear program. Taking its cue from Netanyahu, rather than much of Israel's national security establishment, the RJC had vehemently opposed the deal, or indeed any agreement with Iran that fell short of Bibi's maximum demands that it completely dismantle its nuclear infrastructure. Although a few more moderate Republican lawmakers voiced concerns about the implications of Trump's move for Washington's relationship with its European allies and its international credibility more generally, Most of those who spoke publicly about Trump's decision praised it. 
The RJC thanked Trump, noting that, quote, Iran continues to be an existential threat to Israel and continues to menace Israel directly and through its proxies, such as Hezbollah. Of course, the virtually total Republican congressional alignment with Netanyahu's policies cannot be attributed solely to the generosity of the RJC's donors. After all, Christian fundamentalists who support notions of a greater Israel primarily for theological reasons constitute a core Republican constituency, especially where the GOP is strongest among them along the Mason-Dixon line in the Deep South. Ironically, the only candidate at the 2015 RJC gathering who sounded a defiant tone was Donald Trump. You're not going to support me because I don't want your money, he told the audience. You want to control your politicians, that's fine. I do want your support, but I don't want your money. At the same meeting, he elicited boos from the audience by refusing to offer his views on Jerusalem status and suggested in an AP interview that the burden of peacemaking should fall more on the Israelis and the Palestinians. Two months later, he hinted that he favored doing more business with Iran, particularly by selling its Boeing aircraft. As we noted last year, however, Trump effectively flip-flopped on virtually every one of these issues by March 2016, when he addressed the annual policy conference of the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee. His reversal coincided with a quiet but very intense and ultimately successful courtship of the Adelsons by son-in-law Jared Kushner and Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Ron Dermer. Trump, like most Republican lawmakers, may have wanted money from the, from the couple and other RJC donors after all. So that's, I mean, it's an interesting thing that Jim Loeb and Eli Clifton are suggesting that he did this just for the money, maybe. I think that's their implication, that he flip-flopped on these Israel issues. I'm surprised, actually, going back, and that he that he was acting like, you know, the Israelis should have more burden of the peace process than the Palestinians. I don't even remember Trump saying anything like that. So that's interesting, that he that he flipped so hard. I just remember you know, when he spoke at APAC, that it was very jarring to see just how acquiescent and sort of much he was towing the this sort of the Likudnik line. I remember being surprised by that. And then seeing the cheers and the, and the rave reviews he got after that appearance showed me that he was better at politicking uh, than I previously believed, um, that, he, that he was strategic maybe, um, but it also showed me that he had very strong neoconservative tendencies um, that perhaps he did a better job of hiding during the campaign or a better job of sort of glossing over with his quasi-anti-intervention rhetoric that he would throw out there. It's interesting to see the way people are reacting to this because, you know, here we've had this, this supposed alt-right, new-right, anti-intervention sect on the internet that p- various people on the left have recommended that that people like me and Abby work with to fight the deep state. And I'm not going to bore you by going over who these people are and why I think they should be called out for making such a suggestion. This, this process, the sort of the reversal of the Iran deal and what's happening in Gaza right now sort of really lay bare how deeply sociopathic and phony the, the supposed anti-intervention sector of the alt-right new right is. All they cared about when Trump reversed the deal was, oh, this is good because it's making the, some Democrats mad. It's pissing off John Kerry. It's pissing off Obama. That means that it's good. So a lot of the time, all these people really give a shit about is making the Democrats angry and sort of this knee-jerk 
um, political back and forth. They really don't care about the substance. So for them to say, hands off Syria, don't overthrow Assad, it'll be terrible. And having like no resistance whatsoever to this obvious sort of regime change push happening against Iran right now from the U.S. government, just really, it, it really just shows how hypocritical they are and how, frankly, their, their anti-Syrian intervention stance really can't even be trusted at all. If they're that inconsistent that they would immediately just celebrate the reversal of this deal. And also, you know, I, this is not, this shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone when the protests were happening in Iran, all of those idiots were, were, you know, acting like they were the greatest thing ever. And that this was going to, you know, cause giant change there and stuff like that. Jack Posobiec, Mike Cernovich, um, even Alex Jones. So this is where you really see a separation between the paleoconservative libertarians and the new right alt-right. So sometimes the paleoconservatives and libertarians, they get sometimes sucked into this sort of Trump, um, you know, culture war horseshit, uh, like anti-left horseshit. Um, some of them have completely left the reservation and, and abandoned their sort of libertarian anti-intervention stance just to sort of, you know, badger the left. And it's it's very bizarre to watch. But this is where you really see the split occur, where you see, you know, the real paleo conservatives and libertarians out there who have been consistently anti-intervention. Of course, they're very alarmed at the reversal of this deal. Um, they're very alarmed but what's happening in Gaza. So I just want to emphasize that there is there are people on the right who do take the right position in this regard, but they are not coming from the alt-right, new-right, phony, fucking clickbait sector. None of those people can be trusted. And I really implore that you stop taking them seriously because pretty much their entire, if you want to even call it an ideology, revolves around whatever fucking comes out of Trump's mouth and hating the left. That is not a place to have to form intellectual thought from and to fight the empire and to fight intervention. It's just not. Um, and I know if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson or some of those people, you think that hating the left and rallying against the left is one of the most important things you can do. It's frankly very sad that you think that because one of the most left-leaning TV programs right, that's running on uh, cable TV right now, The Bill Maher Show on HBO just had a panel on about Gaza, and it was horrific how disgusting it was, um, talking about how all Palestinians are human shields. Uh, basically, the paraphrasing of the entire segment on Gaza was, these people worship death, and we shouldn't take their death seriously because it's a PR stunt. That's the most, quote-unquote, left liberal, liberal program we have on a cable news channel, and yet people think that the left is um you know is taking over and that we have this you know this the media is all left and you know conservatives are being censored everywhere that is a complete fantasy and it's very bizarre that people remotely believe that but at the same time i could kind of understand some of it because the neoliberal sort of like elite coastal class really does control a lot of the sort of the larger narrative, but yet they're not on the left at all. And that's what I don't think a lot of these people who are, who are so virulently anti-left understand is that, that those are sort of neoliberal, very slightly left of center people. Actual liberalism, leftism is a very, very marginalized movement in this country. And almost nobody from the left has a mainstream platform. Like I was saying before, the two most mainstream figures that you can maybe even consider being on the left 
are like Bernie Sanders and Cornell West. And Bernie Sanders is a very big stretch to even remotely call him a leftist. Cornell West, uh, you could call him one, but he's the most mainstream guy we got. And he's barely on TV anymore. He's, he, it's almost like he hasn't become more controversial, but lib- liberalism, like actual leftism, has become more controversial over time. So it needs to be marginalized. He's not invited on TV as much as he used to be. And that all makes sense. It's because having left voices broadcast their message in this country is very dangerous to the status quo. Having right-wing, alt-right, new-right people voice their narratives in this country strongly is not a threat to the status quo. It's not at all. So I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. But yeah, just look at the way that the new right, alt-right, is reacting over Iran and Gaza. They cannot be trusted whatsoever to ally with anybody in the fight against imperialism or war. And worshiping someone like Cernovich or Trump thinking that he's going to stop war is absolutely cartoonish. And this empire and this war machine goes beyond presidencies. It, it's longer than the eight-year, four-year election cycle. We already know this. It has nothing to do with Trump, Obama, Bush. This is, this is a machine that just keeps going. This is, this is something else that came out recently. Uh, Max Blumenthal wrote an article about this for Truth Dig. And this is just something that I've felt for a while because I've been seeing this neocon split and sort of examining it. Under Trump, the old guard of foreign policy think tanks like Brookings, CFR, are less threatening right now than what appears to be a direct pipeline from neocon think tanks like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies um, and the Center for Security Policy to, to the Trump administration. Trump gave a special pass to a strain of virulently Islamophobic neocon think tankers who didn't get the same memo that people like Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan got to tamp down their racism in public. This exemplifies part of the neocon split. The Foundation for Defense of Democracies has two famous neocons that sit on its board, James Woolsey and Michael Ledine, two former PNAC members. The Center for Security Policy, which is probably the most Islamophobic think tank there is, is headed by Frank Gaffney. And I guess one of the interesting things is Frank Gaffney got a lot of heat going into this election because it was rumored that he was advising the Trump campaign, yet he personally denies it, even though it was reported, I think, in the Washington Post and maybe some other mainstream outlets. Um, So they were possibly trying to hide the Gaffney connection because he was so unhinged. Um, You know, he's basically like an academic neocon version of Pamela Geller if you want to check out his stuff. And I personally believe that he has been extremely influential to this world of sort of the alt-right, new-right, Breitbart, Daily Caller, Tucker Carlson, horseshit world. Um, I believe that Frank Gaffney is extremely influential on those people. An early indication for me that PNAC member and professional Islamophobe Frank Gaffney had an influence on the Trump campaign, even before that article came out saying that he was advising the campaign, is that when I checked Frank Gaffney's most frequent AM radio guest list, he has a, an AM radio show, a surprising amount of the guests, his most regular guests, not just you know looking at all of the guest list and picking out only certain names. I'm talking about his featured guests, his regular guests, his favorite people. Um, most of them landed inside of Trump's admin or were at one time advising his campaign officially. That includes 
Mike Pompeo, Sebastian Gorka, James Woolsey, Newt Gingrich, and Mike Pence. Um, it's very odd that all these people ended up coming into the Trump administration and, or campaign in some way, shape, or form. And Frank Gaffney had them all there as rotating regular guests on his radio show. In fact, I didn't even know who Sebastian Gorka was and Mike Pompeo was until I looked at Frank Gaffney's and listened to his show. Um, and it, that's quite disturbing if Frank Gaffney sort of provided this secret influence on the Trump campaign to that extent where Trump was so enamored or Trump's people were so enamored of these guests that would come on Gaffney's show that they ended up just bringing them all into the administration. That, that's very uh, surreal if that's what happened. I don't, I don't know if that happened. It's just, to me, it's not a coincidence if you look at Frank Gaffney's radio show and look at his rotating guest list. It's just too bizarre how many of those people directly landed in the Trump admin. And, and just before I read this article on Truth Dig about a, uh, someone who I would call a Frank Gaffneyite who is now tapped for Iranian regime change plans in the Trump admin, I just wanted to say this. The one thing the neocons relied on for a long time during the Bush era was the bloodthirsty populist sentiment and evangelical rage towards Muslims. And I feel like now, and this is the part that they don't say is why they dislike Trump. And, then, and Abby and I have discussed this multiple times that Trump is taking the mask on, off of some of their most disgusting positions. I think a lot of the mainstream neocons like Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan are very pissed off at Trump for subverting this process and creating more of a direct pipeline to both worlds, the bloodthirsty populist sentiment world and the evangelical religious rage towards Muslims world. Traditionally, neocons have always kept those people at arm's length, but have peppered the field with seeds, seedlings, to try to get those people to react. Trump has subverted that by, by directly piping it to them, and also having it in his administration itself. The neocons, just like the establishment core of the GOP, always knew to keep evangelical bloodthirst at arm's length and to only use it as a tool for war and like, you know, certain policy shifts. Trump just put straight up Islamophobic evangelicals in his administration. That's not how the game usually works. I think this is important. This in and of itself is probably creating a lot of the hatred towards Trump from the neoconservative is that Trump has taken the mask off of their hor horrific positions and, you know, has no buffer. Um, you know, he's actually working directly with people like Eric Prince, like these crazy evangelical preachers who say that, you know, the, the Holocaust was because Jews were sinners and stuff like that. I mean, it's really fascinating. Fox News, you know, uh, right now, they have on Foundation for Defense of Democracy guests on constantly and the Institute for Study of War guests. So, so let me just read to you really quickly um, an article from Truthdig from May 12th uh, by Max Blumenthal. It says, Trump team may be focusing on odd, obscure Iran plan. President Donald Trump's unilateral exit from the JCPOA has triggered a frenzied push inside the administration to support color revolution-style regime change operations in Iran. According to the neoconservative Free Beacon... And this is, this is noteworthy in and of itself. The Free Beacon is one of the first new neocon outlets after the Weekly Standard. Um, like, and I say neocon in the most literal way possible. Like, 
Yeah, sure. Some of these other right-wing outlets and even the Daily Beast and BuzzFeed put out neocon propaganda. But in terms of a distinctly neocon outlet that's sort of formed in the neoconservative ideology, Free Beacon is one of the main ones. I mean, is the main one after the Weekly Standard. According to the neoconservative Free Beacon, National Security Director John Bolton has authorized the publication and distribution of an internal white paper urging a strategy by which the Trump administration can actively work to assist an already aggravated Iranian public topple the hardline ruling regime through a democratization strategy that focuses on driving a deeper wedge between the Iranian people and the ruling regime. The white paper was produced by Jim Hansen, a self-proclaimed expert, practitioner of the art of war, who is virtually unknown in Washington. Jim Hansen has a Twitter handle called Uncle Jimbo. Um, Hansen is the director of the Security Studies Group, a little-known think tank staffed by former employees of Frank Gaffney's Center for Security Policy. Like Gaffney, who has spilled gallons of ink trying to prove that Barack Obama was a Muslim, Hansen and his colleagues are fervent anti-Islam zealots who emerge from the fever swamps of right-wing online media, touting their military experience and mock scholarship to market themselves as counter-terror experts. So apparently, um, someone named Sara Lazar interviewed Hansen for the Gray Zone Project. Um, Max goes on to describe some of the highlights from that interview. Hansen offered vigorous support for the religious profiling of suspects by police, but wasn't sure if race should be a factor as well. Um, no. How about no? I'll go with no. If I was going to start, that's not one of the things I would put in the initial profile. He introduced a vague plan to patrol Muslim-heavy neighborhoods, but couldn't name a single one. According to Hansen, Minneapolis and Boston are hotbeds of jihadism and deserve some form of mass surveillance. Well, with Bolton in the White House, these forces have converged to produce an Iran policy that is edging quickly from containment to rollback, and Hansen appears to be in the thick of the action, producing a regime change blueprint for Trump's NSC with enough time to still play Uncle Jimbo on Twitter. Very, very bizarre shit. I mean, this is this is nuts. Um, it's almost like this is what I mean by subverting. I mean, normally an administration would hire someone like Fred Kagan, you know, and I'm not saying that would have be, would be any better. Fred Kagan is a fucking psychopath. But this shows that Trump is subverting those normal channels. He's going right past someone like the Institute for the Study of Wars scholars and straight to an Islamophobic think tank ran by ex-Frank Gaffney employees, um, straight to a guy who goes by the name Uncle Jimbo on Twitter. Very, very interesting. I mean, this is like, you know, Trump nationalism meets neoconservatism meets blatant blood Islamophobia, like Muslim bloodthirst, um, just nakedly out in the open. I mean, go look at Uncle Jimbo's Twitter feed to see what I'm talking about. And the guy is fucking unhinged as fuck you know but this goes along the lines of a lot of the other things trump is doing very interesting times we're living in and i guess that really concludes the broadcast because i don't really have much more else to say except for i really really hope that if the time comes where there's going to be some kind of military action proposed on iran that a lot of people stand up and oppose it and i'm worried but you know, I guess one of the nice things about Russia having all these media apparatuses all over the world is I know they'll probably push back on it. You know, we can depend on at least Russian media to push back on it. So I know everybody now thinks Russian media is evil and that it's meddling in, you know, every aspect of American society. But hey, maybe we need a little push. Maybe we need fucking another country 
to get people here to be influenced to stop a, a regime change war in Iran. So, you know, um, that's really the only hope I have. I can't imagine that um, if we go to war, CNN and MSNBC will be behind that war. They praise Trump for bombing Assad's forces. That's just the reality of it. CNN, MSNBC will be a direct military industrial complex pipeline in the same way that they were during the Iraq war if Trump launches a new war. That's just a fact. Um, you know, there might be still some pushback against Trump, more criticism of him. I mean, we did see more criticism of Israel because, you know, Jared Kushner and Ivanka were standing there, you know, celebrating the opening of the embassy while these um, Palestinians were being killed. So that's one good thing that can come out of sort of the overwhelming hatred for Trump is that it might push certain issues to the forefront. So now Israel, you know, and the Likudniks are seen more as crazy right-wing racists um, blatantly because they have such a kinship with Trump that that will push more of the neoliberals into taking sort of an anti-Israeli apartheid position. That's my hope, at least. So, you know, maybe Trump trying to invade Iran or to overthrow their government will create a similar kind of pushback and hopefully it will and even though i think trump is a total fucking shithead i really hope that this peace process continues but honestly the the idea of north korea you know denuclearizing themselves um is uh it does concern me and i'm sure that they've you know they've thought this over quite heavily so It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, they in that letter that I read earlier, they are very strongly saying that all they're willing to do is to denuclearize if the U.S. completely leaves them alone, doesn't try to plan any economic development there, lets them to be continue to be um, sort of a communist state, um, and obviously that's not going to be allowed. So I, I mean. I'm honestly shocked that they were willing to denuclearize in the first place. Um, and I personally don't think it's a good idea. That might be the only thing that's keeping them intact at the moment. So uh, one of these days, we're going to have Tim Chirac on this program. We were supposed to have him on a few months ago, or maybe it was a month ago, actually, like right when this seemed like we were gonna, about to go to war with North Korea. And um, when I had planned to interview him, things started to shift very, very quickly, uh, very accelerated. And I didn't, I wasn't really prepared to interview him, um, at that time because the, the whole thing had just flipped upside down. So now that we're sort of back to square one, so to speak, and that it looks like this might not continue as planned, it might be a good idea to interview him now. And if you liked what you heard today and you enjoy Media Roots Radio, please consider donating using Patreon. If you go to patreon.org slash media roots radio, you can donate as little as $1 a month. Um, we have some perks. If you donate $20 or sorry, not a month, $1 per episode. And we also have some perks. If you donate $20 per episode, um, you get a free copy of a very heavy agenda. Stay tuned for the next episode of media roots radio, which will be with me and Abby. Peace. Peace.